right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Woo! Would you do that if Pastor Tim asked you that? Good. Just making sure. I don't know. All right. Well, my name is Brandon. I'm uh, the associate pastor here. If you came in late or you don't know me, that's who I am. And uh, the elders are at their elder planning weekend, not retreat other planning weekend. So uh, I'm going to be sharing the word with you this morning. We'll be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. If you need a Bible, just stick up your hand. We got ushers in the back that will bring one for you. 1 Peter chapter 5 is pretty much where we spend our whole time. So go ahead and flip there. Everybody there? 1 Peter 5. Excellent. We're going to look at the first uh, five verses this morning. Let's read those together. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen? Now, it kind of sounds like this is a sermon that I should be preaching like to the elders, and like y'all can just go home. Uh, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But since they are away... Um, I thought it appropriate for us to just spend a few moments reflecting uh, on what it means as a church family to have elders, to have people that God has placed in authority over us, and, and what that means for our church and, and what that looks like for us as we live out our daily faith. Um, and I want to begin with this, this question, and I'm going to ask for like actual responses, like out loud. Not in your brain, but out loud. What makes for a healthy church? Unity. That was the first thing that was said last service, too. Very interesting. Unity. Good, yes. If we're disunified, very bad. Love. Yeah, basically the foundation for everything we do. Okay, good. What else? Faith and Christ-centered. Yes, Faith and faith in Christ, uh, putting Christ as the, the focus on, on it for everything, absolutely true. What else? Godly leaders. Good, you kind of get a sense of where we're going after you read the passage. Okay. It's okay to look at the text. You know, you know I, 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 I'm the youth pastor here, and I tell these kids all the time, like, you know, you ask them a question, they're like looking at you. The answer's in the word. I, we just read it. Now you're all flipping back. Oh, I don't know. What else? What else makes for a healthy church? Obedience, Obedience forgiveness. Th these are all, all things that came up in first service as well. Very essential. Humility. Humility. Oh, yeah, we're getting there. All right. I like it. I like it when you put two and two together. Humility. And actually, I would say a commitment to God's word. 
as well, right? We're called Idlewild Bible Church, right? That's not an accident. We're a Bible church because the Bible, God's Word, is the supreme authority, the absolute overarching um, rule for how we live and, and practice our faith. True? Good. But what would make a commitment to following God's Word happen in a group such as ourselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. Faith, good. Compassion? That's, abs yeah, absolutely. Ooh, somebody also looking at the text. This is good. Some, yes, and, and this is kind of what you guys are kind of getting it, kind of getting it. I love it. Um, strong leadership uh, is essential for us if we are to follow God's word on a daily basis. Right? If we don't have strong leaders who are committed to God's word, what are we going to have? A church that's aimless, a church that's focused on something other than God's word. So strong leadership is essential to having a healthy church. And I am, I am so thankful for the men that God has placed over us in, for, for our care here at IBC. And I want to just take a few moments before we kind of get into to your section of the verse, which really doesn't happen until uh, verse 5. Um, I want to just have us step back and, and take a moment at, and look at what these elders, these leaders, uh, what is required of them. Now, most churches can rise and fall based on their ability to have strong leaders. I personally have been a part of a few of those that have fallen because of a lack of <coughs> strong leadership. But of course, leaders can't lead without what? Faithful followers. That's all y'all. I'm not from the South. I just like to say that. <laughs> but even with strong leaders, even with faithful followers, that ever-present sin of pride always seems to rear its ugly head. It gets in the way. It makes life difficult. It tangles us up in so many other sins. And what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter 5 addresses this very issue. Humility, to be clothed in humility, is the key for all of our Christian living. It's the key for the elders as they shepherd the flock to do so with humility. It's the key for us as we learn to submit, as we learn to follow. And it's the key for us in our relationships as we build them with one another. Humility. We are to be clothed with humility. You could summarize this passage in this way. In a healthy church, the elders will shepherd, the flock will submit, and everyone will be clothed in a spirit of mutual humility. Now, the church that Peter writes to here in 1 Peter was a church under persecution. Uh, much of the letter right before this section and right after addresses the issue of them struggling under persecution, under trials. And to survive at this time, for these believers to take their faith and to make it to the end, they needed a solution for their spiritual health. 
In our passage here today, Peter gives us that solution. Now, again, the first four verses of this passage focus primarily on the elders. But there's also this word for the rest of us. And ultimately, my hope is that when we leave here today, we will realize that every day we need to wake up and clothe ourselves with humility, first and foremost. Now, let's look at the first four verses this morning. And I want to I just start by kind of taking a, a moment to describe these kind of three words that are used to, to, to talk about the, the word elder in the, in the Bible. In the New Testament, these three words are kind of used interchangeably. It's the word elder, overseer, deacon, and pastor or shepherd. Uh, those words are all kind of the same root word, but they do describe different offices of the leadership in the church. And the elder seems to, to qualify the character qualities of a man, that he's a mature man of God. Right? When you think of an elder, you think of somebody who's older, somebody who's walked with the Lord for a while. They're mature. And 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1 makes clear that the main qualification for elders is not that they have impressive spiritual gifts, that they're the most eloquent teachers, but that they are men who love Jesus, that they are primarily, first and foremost, godly men. Now, overseer or bishop is also used in, in Acts 20 and in Titus 1, and it looks at the primary function of this office where uh, these elders, these leaders, manage the, the affairs of the local church. They deal with issues at hand. They make policy. Uh, they deal with uh, doctrinal issues. And, and this, this job of, of overseer bishop uh, is basically kind of like a manager of the church, you would say. And then this last term, pastor or, or shepherd even, focuses on the task of, of the elder as providing leadership, care, feeding the flock, protecting God's people. And as we, as we jump into the, the rest of these first four verses, I want us to just kind of realize the ramifications of what it means for these men to choose to be elders, to be appointed by God as elders. Uh, for us, it, it's difficult maybe to think about that uh, because we don't realize all that goes into it. We don't see all the things that go on behind the scenes. But let's look at this. Uh, in verse 1, we, we kind of see... Uh, Peter making this, this claim that he's exhorting the elders among you as a fellow elder, right? Um, he is one of them. And, and as an apostle, Peter would have had authority really over any church. He could have walked, he could walk in here right now and we'd be like, oh, what do you have to say for us? Right? Just push me out of the way. Uh, Peter's here. But it's interesting that he begins by relating his experiences with Christ, right? Peter was this guy with I mean, his whole faith journey was this, these mountains and valleys, right? Epic highs, monumental <laughs> failures. I mean, he's, we love him because he's like us, right? Uh, we see him and we're like, oh, he's just, he's out there giving it his all. And then you turn the next page and you're like, oh, he's on his face, like fighting the dirt again. Uh, that's Peter. And he was a witness of Christ's sufferings. He was a guy that that saw Christ in his most difficult moments. He was with him in the garden. He was, he was there when he was being beaten and flogged and being uh, held under trial. 
He saw the scars of the risen Savior's hands and on his side when he returned. But he was also a guy who witnessed the glory of Christ. He got a glimpse of what Christ was going to be on the Mount of Transfiguration when he ascended. Now again, it was one of those moments in Peter's life where he's like, hey, let's just camp out here. Not a good idea, Peter. He gets rebuked by Jesus. It's a fascinating story if you want to go back and read it another time. But for us, Peter is our example of what a true elder should look like. They're to be a student of the cross. A man who is well aware of the sufferings of Christ as well as the coming glory of the kingdom. There are men who are to focus on the suffering of Christ as a way to, to deal with sin and, and, and to love Christ more. When we reflect on Christ's sufferings, that is a way for us to put off our own sin. That's why we come to the Lord's table and we take communion because it's a time for us to remember his sufferings and what those sufferings mean for us. Like those sufferings mean sanctification. Those sufferings mean holiness. Those sufferings mean that your sins are done. And the elders and the leaders need to have that in full focus as they serve. And focusing on the glory that is to be revealed helps an elder to live in hope and holiness as they deal with the difficult issues and the struggles in the church. They know that it's not always going to be like this. That Christ will someday return and it's going to be glorious. It's this kind of man that can lead God's people. An elder must be a man who walks closely with the crucified, risen, and returning Jesus. Now verses 2 and 3 say that a shepherd is to exercise oversight with a right attitude. Right? The command shepherd the flock of God makes us think of what? Tim preached on it a few weeks ago. Psalm 23, right? The, the, the good shepherd. It's a familiar metaphor in scripture that Christ is our good shepherd. Jesus even talks about himself as being the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He says that he calls his sheep by name and they follow him because they know his voice. And the role of elder is wrapped up in this word shepherd. We are called to be under shepherds, to tend and care for his flock. Now, shepherding means leading God's people in the ways of God. Sheep cannot be driven like cattle, right? They're stupid. It's one of those glorious metaphors. We're like, wait a minute. You're calling me a sheep? All right. Even though it's true. Sheep can only be led by example. They're followers, right? They follow where the shepherd goes. And the shepherd takes these sheep to the rich pastures of God's word where they can be fed and nourished. The shepherd binds up the wounded. He corrects the sheep who causes trouble. That's why they carry a staff, you know. 
need a little nudge, some of us. He goes after strays and brings them back to the fold. The shepherd is always alert, on guard, protecting the flock from enemies that prey upon them. And often this kind of work involves great personal sacrifice and effort. And I've only been in pastoral ministry for about, about eight years now. But I will tell you that I am thankful that you don't get to see all of the attacks that come against the church. That these men are put in place to protect you from those things. Have you thought about that? When trials come, when difficulties arise, they're there to shield the way so that your journey can move forward. Peter sums up the shepherding task with this term, exercising oversight. Now, oversight is not like being an overlord, right? Uh, The fact that it is the flock of God reminds us that these shepherds are not the owners of the sheep. That we all belong to God. We are simply put in charge of what he owns and cares for. And the key for the elders is to remember that one day they will have to give an account for what they do. Now, I don't know about you, but that's that's what keeps me on my knees. As a pastor... Uh, I have to stand before the Lord and give an account for everything that I've said or done in this ministry and in all the other ministries I do. We will stand before the Lord and give account for our actions. And the key for us, for the elders, to giving proper oversight is having the right attitude. Peter describes this attitude with a series of three contrasts. Let's look at verse uh, 2, the beginning of 2. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And leaders should not be in a role of elder out of duty or expectation or requirement, but out of a delight out of a delight to serving the Lord. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1 that an an overseer should aspire to the office. There's nothing wrong with desiring to become an elder. Yet serving as an overseer is not a matter of ambition, but of the calling of God. Ask yourself if you desire that role, has God called you to that place? We don't all need to be the head, right? We'd be like the opposite of the headless horseman, just a floating head. That would be weird, right? We can't have a room full of leaders. How would we function, right? We are all called by God to a certain task. Are you content in the task that God has called you to? Now, it's interesting because these men... In Peter's time, when they aspired to the role of elder, they were aspiring to persecution, to putting their family at risk, to realizing the fact that they could be killed at any moment 
for their faith. That is what they were aspiring to. So don't think for any moment that it's some glamorous thing that the Lord thinks, oh, yeah, overseers, great. Because in that day, when persecution occurred, the leaderships were the ones that suffered first. Cut the head off, and the body died. Right? That's been the enemy's attack for 2,000 plus years. Right? That's why we see pastors struggling and falling in our society. That's why we see men of God struggling because the enemy is relentless in his pursuit of those men. So during times of persecution, an elder and his family would have been first targets. But the rest of the time, elder and leadership roles are more often the grinding of the muck of the stalls instead of the glory of recognition. It's the hard behind-the-scenes work that never gets noticed or seen. And again, many of us don't realize the hours that are put in, the efforts and the times of prayer and, and the, the sacrifices made to, to attain this office. So an elder, an overseer, must serve gladly because God has called him to the task, not grudgingly because he was forced into it. Let's look at the rest of verse 2. He says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, the opposite of serving under compulsion would be to serve eagerly. But there are many men out there who serve eagerly for the wrong reasons. Right? There's an entire television station of pastors who are out there for their own financial benefit. I'm not going to name any names. You can figure it out. Paul taught that it is proper for some elders, of course, to be supported financially for their work. He says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching because it takes a lot of time. But a man's motive must never be to make money through the ministry, but rather to serve God with eagerness. And I can attest, as a pastor, you do not go into this profession thinking you're going to be rocking and rolling in the dough, right? <laughs> it's not about that. It's about the calling of God. Amen? Now let's look at, at verse 3. He says, Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Uh, some people go into ministry because they like the power or the status or, or the recognition that they receive from being a leader. Uh, I heard a well-known pastor say once that he thought most men in pastoral ministry were insecure, and, and he thought that, that they were after the, uh, the affirmation they received from their people. And I, I, I thought about that comment for a minute, and I thought, if he's right, we're in big trouble. right? If it's all about receiving affirmation, feeling good about yourself, man, you, you've chosen the wrong profession. A man's motive <clears throat> to be in the pastorate must never be because he wants power or recognition. Because those two things right there would make you unqualified to serve if that is your heart's desire. It says that elders are to not lead by being domineering, but by being an example. Uh, you should look at the lives of the elders and the leaders that are placed over you and think, I do want to be like those men. They love Jesus. 
I'm not saying you need to agree with everything that those men do or that they're the perfect example because only Christ is that. But when you look at their lives, can you say, you know what, I aspire to have that kind of maturity, that kind of trust, that kind of hope in my Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that elders can never exercise authority over us, right? There are several instances in Scripture where elders must take a stand and say, we're not going to allow this practice, or we're going we're to deal with this false doctrine, or, or we're going uh, to deal with this issue of church discipline, or we're going we're gonna to protect the flock from these spiritual bullies, or, or whatever it may be. Um, elders are required to do things like that. But it's not their normal mode of leadership. Uh, their normal mode should be by being an example to the rest of the flock, by living lives of holiness. And we also need to remember that being a leader is more a responsibility than a privilege. If a man is into leadership for the perks, he's abusing a sacred trust. He's abusing the calling from the Lord. Leadership, whether in the church or the home or in government, means that you're the one whom the Lord holds accountable for the direction of the things under your care. Now, if that thought doesn't cause you to break into a cold sweat, it sure does me. So this requirement for shepherding is a, is a close personal relationship with Jesus. The responsibility of shepherding is, the is to exercise oversight with the right attitude. And it's not all difficult negative stuff, right? Because there is a promise here in verse 4 for the elders and the shepherds. It says that the reward for shepherding is the unfading crown of glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I thought about what this meant for a long time. I have no idea, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> right? I, I don't know what, if it's a literal crown they stick on your head or it's just like lots of hats. I don't know. I don't know. But it's important for us as a church family to remember this. The rewards for being an elder don't come until Christ returns. Right? They do not come until Christ returns. That Christ is the chief shepherd again reminds us that we are only under shepherds, accountable to the chief, and our motivation for serving as an elder must never be done to receive the praise of men, but only out of the desire to hear on that great day, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's when we will share in that unfading crown of glory. And unlike earthly rewards which fade, this will last forever. In a healthy church, the elders will actively shepherd the flock, which is an awesome responsibility. And I think that's why Peter devotes so many verses out of this section to that. But, now it's your turn. The flock must be willing to follow. Now this, this is something you might not think about very often. But I want to put it in your heads. God has placed men in this church specifically over you. And he did it on purpose. Whether you like it or not. Whether you agree with all the decisions or not. He chose those men for his reasons and his purposes and not yours. Think about that. 
What does that mean for us? What does that mean? Now, submission is a thing we we all don't like to talk about, right? Because it's like, oh, I don't want to submit to anybody. I don't know about you. When I think of like submitting, I think of like wrestling, and somebody's pinning you, and you're like, I, I submit, I submit, I'm out. But I'm not sure that's exactly what he means here, right? That the elders got you in a stranglehold, and until you tap out, you know, you will submit, or we're going to choke you out. But God has placed these men over your care, and He did it for loving reasons. He did it for his glory. And it's difficult for us when we struggle with the decisions that are made or we, we think that things aren't going the way we want them to go or we think these guys are taking such a long time to make a decision or we just flat out disagree. Are you willing to submit as Peter is calling you to here? Now, it's interesting, um, in this passage, Peter singles out the young guys. And as a medium young guy, it's my privilege to share with you. You know, it's, why does he single out the young men? Probably because they were the most stubborn, bullheaded, relentless, like, I'm going to pursue my own thing. I don't care what you say. All you teenage boys, I'm looking at you, right? For some reason, teenage girls are less. They don't have that as bad. But teenage boys, it's like, my mom and dad are here. They can, they can attest. <laughs> don't ask them after. Oh, that was a long time ago. But these younger men, they're often more impatient. They often struggle with ideology and, and things that think that they think they can tackle everything on their own. And, and they don't need help of anyone. And they're, they're not content to sit back and wait for more mature men to, to make the decisions that need to be made. And even though he's only addressing that to the younger men, I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, that we could say, yes, we act like young men often, or at least on a rare occasion. As we get older, it, it tends to wane a little bit, right? That, that zeal to be a little more bullheaded. I don't know. I hope so. But he singles them out as representing everyone in the church, and he tells those who are not elders to submit. Now, again, submission does not mean a silent acceptance of all decisions that are made. There is a place for us to express disagreement or voice our concerns. That place is not Sunday morning after the service, just in case you weren't aware of that. Submission is primarily an attitude of respect and a recognition of rank. Whether we like it or not, there's ranks in every aspect of our lives. When your children, your parents are over you. When you're working for an employer, you got a boss. If you're if you're running your own business, you got to answer to the Lord. No matter what your station is, there's a ranking of things. There's always someone over you. And God is telling us here, 
it is absolutely imperative for us who are not elders to learn to submit to those who are placed in authority over us in this church. Now, again, if the elders go against some clear principle of scripture, you know, Jesus is not the Christ, you better speak up, right? That's not good. It is your responsibility in in those moments to appeal to them, not out of your anger or your frustration, but appeal to them from God's word to correct lovingly and gently and say, hey, you're a student of God's word. You love Jesus. Look at what this says. But normally, on an everyday basis, Peter is telling us that the flock needs to submit and cooperate with what the elders are doing as they seek to follow the Lord's will for his church. Now, this is where we're going to end up today in the second half of five. In a healthy church, everyone relates to one another in a spirit of humility. He he spent some time reminding the elders about their role and what their call is. And then he encouraged us as followers to submit to the authority placed over us. And then the most difficult portion of this passage, everyone, everyone, clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. Think about that. What is Peter asking you to do? He's asking you to consider others better than yourselves. I mean, look around the room. These are your brothers and sisters. You might think you have other family. This is your family, whether you like it or not. (laughs) I love it. But we are called as followers of Christ to submit to one another in humility. Man, I pray that that would be true here. What a difficult task. Because we all have our own opinions. We all think we got stuff figured out. Maybe not everything, but some stuff. And it's interesting, if you, if you look at the definition of humility, it's, it's literally translated as lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. Now, it's not talking about acting like we're stupid, right? Oh, I'm just no good at anything. Humility is not being Eeyore, right? It's not about having like low self-esteem. I just need to suppress myself. That's not true humility. You were created by God in his image. In his likeness, you are glorious, each and every one of you. But in scripture, nowhere does it tell us to think more highly of ourselves. There's not a verse, you can, if you could find it, you're reading the wrong Bible, right? There is nothing in scripture that says, you know, just pat yourself on the back. You should think you're awesome. there are a ton of verses that remind us that we need to humble ourselves. I mean, too many to even count. And I often remind myself that when God repeats himself like that, it's usually because we really need to hear it. 
right? One of the most difficult things for, for humans who struggle with sin is pride. And the opposite of pride is humility. Pride causes us to seek after a ton of other sins. Now, I, I agree, I disagree with this idea that, that humility is this elusive idea because when you think you're humble, then, you, then you've failed, right? When you finally get there, you've lost it. You say, you know, I'm, I'm humble. Darn it! Now I'm not humble. But that's not true. I disagree with that because both Jesus and Paul called themselves humble. And we know that they weren't being arrogant. But I would say that the best definition in the scripture of what humility is, and I would encourage you to mark this passage in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 3.5. If you, if you write in your Bible, just write the word humility next to this verse, or humility definition. It says this, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Humility isn't being aware of your own insufficiency, but it's trusting in Christ's all-sufficiency. Now, we, we would think Moses was a good example of a guy with low self-esteem, right? Lord comes to him, okay, I have this great task for you. You're going to lead my people out of Egypt. And his response was like, well, I'm not very good at speaking. You know, I don't know. I don't think it's a good idea, right? We would say, oh, poor little Moses just needs a little pat on the back. And you can do it, buddy. Come on. But God doesn't say that to Moses. He doesn't tell Moses to work on his self-esteem. He doesn't tell him, you know, just keep trying, buddy. You'll make it someday. You're just terrific. What is this comment to Moses? His comment is an attack against Moses' inability to trust in God's sufficiency. Moses did not trust that God would provide everything he needed. He was telling him, I am not sufficient for you. God didn't correct Moses' low view of himself. Instead, he challenged Moses' inadequate view of God. And people with low self-esteem need that same encouragement. It's not about how good you feel about yourself. It's about how great you think your God is. Is he all sufficient for your needs? If he is, what do you got to worry about? Nothing. If he is all sufficient for everything that you need, have to do is trust. Christian leaders throughout history have always recognized this. John Chrysostom called humility the foundation of all our philosophy. Augustine said, if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, I would say first and second and third and everything is based on humility. John Calvin regarded pride as the chief vice and humility as a preeminent virtue. He said, I require only that laying aside the disease of self-love and ambition by which he is blinded and thinks more highly of himself than he ought, he rightly recognized himself in the faithful mirror of Scripture. 
when Jonathan Edwards said that the whole gospel and all of God's dealings with us are calculated to bring about in us a humble attitude towards ourselves, that those who lack this attitude are destitute of true religion. If you're not desiring to be humble, if you're not desiring to make yourself low, you are destitute of true religion. Now, that's not scripture. That was just his own opinion, but an interesting one. But if you think these men's comments are are too strong, too heavy-handed, I would encourage you to look at the second half of of verse 5. Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34. And I'm going to read a little bit different translation, but I like this one better. He says, God sets himself in battle against those who lift themselves up, but he gives grace to those who see themselves as lowly. God sets himself in battle against those who lift themselves up, but he gives grace to those who see themselves as lowly. I don't know about you, but nothing could be worse than having God say, we're going to battle. You and me, bring it. You're not going to win that one, right? You're not even going to win like a small battle, right? You're just going to be obliterated. There's nothing worse than saying God has set against you. And on the flip side, there's nothing more beautiful and essential than saying God's grace is turned towards you. The way to be the object of God's grace is to humble yourself before him and before others. If you're saying this morning, you know, I am at battle with the Lord. All it takes is surrender. A humbling of yourself and saying, you know what, I can't fight this battle anymore. I submit to you. And oh, what a church it would be if we would learn to do that to one another. If we would set aside our petty arguments, our disagreement, our silly opinions, and we would say, I humble myself before you. It's the most important thing for a healthy church that's full of a bunch of sinners. All good churches are filled with a bunch of sinners. That's what makes it a good church. And my hope and prayer as we leave here today, and in my encouragement to the elders when they ever, whenever they listen to it, if they do, my encouragement to you guys and my encouragement to all of us is to humble yourselves to one another. Think about what that means for your life. What does that mean when you get up in the morning to clothe yourself with humility before you put your socks on and your chonies and your pants? Say, Lord, I'm going to clothe myself today with humility. I'm going to consider others better than myself. Oh, what a church it would be. So let's put on the humility of Christ. Let's be humble. And let's look to rid ourselves of any pride that we hold so dear in our hearts.